We should recognize the title of my message this morning being the words of the angel to Joseph from Matthew chapter 1. Mary will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for, and here it is, he will save his people from their sins. That's my title this morning. He will save his people from their sins. This sounds like so modest a proposal, doesn't it? It sounds so genteel. You'll call his name Jesus. We'll save his people from their sins. Joseph, asleep, dreaming, wrestling with the uncomfortable reality that his betrothed is pregnant. Yes. But then hearing from a divine messenger that full salvation will come of it. We tend to exhale a bit, not appreciating very deeply what this salvation that Jesus is going to provide actually means. We tend to exhale not knowing exactly what it will require, not knowing exactly how far it will extend. We just breathe a little easier. You call him's name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. We need to think about this a bit this morning. And I think Christmas morning couldn't be a better time to do it. That meaning of the name of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua from the Old Testament, the anointed of the Lord, the Savior, the Deliverer. We've heard a bit about this in recent weeks. It was under the threat of war, for instance, that God prompted King Ahaz to ask for a sign of his presence with Judah during their troubled days, some 700 years before, sorry, some 600 years before. The writing of it was 700 years prior. The actual events, roughly 600, beginning at that time. The king refused, if you remember, to ask for a sign. And so that was when the prophet wrote a very familiar verse to us, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign... If you won't ask for one, O king, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. There's God's promise to his people. Even before going off into exile, his promise was that he would be with them and he would deliver them on the other side of this painful reality. But God with us, it, 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 it's not going to happen in the way we'd expect. Two chapters later, Isaiah continues on talking about this promised one and says what we just sang together, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So in this threatened position, ultimate peace would not come to the people of God through his raising up some brilliant general among them or an indomitable army raised up from their young men. That's not how the promise goes. In fact, the promise is such that it's even hard to figure out in historic context what the prophet would saying to the people that would have been a comfort to them at that time. 
Because when Isaiah wrote this, the coming of Christ was still 700 years off. Ultimate peace would begin not with a brilliant general or an indomitable army among God's people, but through the birth of an infant. How's that going to be helpful? We heard about that from Pastor Kip just last Sunday as he preached Matthew 1 and tied that back into Isaiah 7 through 9. Clearly this child, though, that's been promised would become king. We can read about that in the pages of Scripture. And a unique king at that. He'd be called by these amazing names that we just read. Wonderful counselor. That means he always knows what is right and best to do. Wouldn't you love to live under a king like that? Always knows what's right and best to do. Wonderful counselor, also called mighty God. That means he'll have the power to accomplish that which he knows is right and best. So it's not just a matter of knowing it and discerning it. He's got the strength and the power to bring it about. He'll be called Everlasting Father. We get confused on that because of the categories of the Trinity that we've hammered out since then, but this is no threat to that. What this means when talking about this king who will be born is that even with his great wisdom and power, he'll still have an intimate, fatherly relationship with his people. And then Prince of Peace, his reign over them will be characterized by perfect shalom. That's just a fun word to say, isn't it? That's peace. When you say shalom, it just somehow settles your heart and slows your pulse. This is the Prince of Peace. This is the one who brings a peace that transcends all understanding. His reign will be characterized by perfect shalom, universal harmony between all peoples, perfectly satisfied in their surroundings, in their environment. That's who this king is. That's who he will be, this infant that's born. We caught clear glimpses of this king in Pastor Nick's sermon three weeks ago as Advent was just getting rolling from Psalm 2. There will be a forerunner for this king, an advance man to announce his coming so that no one will miss it. And although his, his arrival will save and will unite all those who receive him, all those who trust him as Savior and Lord and King, it will also at the very same time bring eternal judgment on those who don't. We learn this from Todd Walker, just two weeks back, Malachi 3 and 4. That same evening, we heard from Alex Kirk at our Worship and Word evening that the assembly of angels who celebrated the coming of Jesus with the Bethlehem shepherds on the night when Jesus was born, do you remember what they were called? They were called a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. The multitude of the heavenly hosts reminding us of God's name, the Lord of hosts. The very name that appears many times in Malachi's prophecy, but also throughout the Old Testament, it means commander of the Lord's armies. 
That's the one, the child, who will be sent. He's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, but he's also the Lord of hosts. The Lord over which these angels are celebrating on the night of his human birth. Commander of the Lord's army. So this promised infant child actually will be a brilliant general after all. And he leads an indomitable fighting force, the armies of heaven. It's just that that's not all he is. He's all of this we've talked about and and more. Surely he'll defeat his enemies in the end as a brilliant general leading the armies of heaven. Not as though he needs those armies. He was the creator of all things the one through whom they were created. This is all metaphorical to help us understand the power and the majesty of this promised king. Surely he'll defeat all his enemies in in the end, but that is not, do you hear me? That is not the most remarkable thing that he does. In our day and age, with all of the opposition that we see to the truths of Scripture and the truths of Christ, in this world that surrounds us, the mounting opposition to any idea of the God of the Bible, we can still think that the defeat of the enemies of God is the greatest demonstration of God's power that comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ promised to come as an infant. But that's not it at all. The flip side of that demonstration of awesome power is an even greater work yet. He will save his people from their sins. That is a breathtaking statement. There is no opposition to God in this world or to the people of God like the sin that resides within the hearts of the image-bearing creatures made by God. The far greater work is not the defeat of his enemies and their eternal judgment. The amazing reality is what Jesus' name meant. He will save his people from their sins. He will reconcile sinful people to a holy God. That's impossible. That is impossible. You cannot reconcile sinful people to a holy God because if a holy God is in relationship with sinful people, His holiness is compromised by it. Holiness means separation from all of that. If He becomes uniquely and intimately intertwined with it, His holiness is compromised. It's impossible to reconcile sinners to a holy God. And yet, Jesus came to do just that. He came to do the impossible. This great king whose coming was promised in Isaiah 7 and whose reign will be over all things, all peoples and places for all time, as promised in Isaiah 9, this great king is actually one and the same person with the suffering servant that's promised in Isaiah 53. 
the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who's crushed for our iniquities. Because he, was, because he poured out his soul to death, the prophet writes there, and was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many. This great king will become guilty of your sins and mine and pay for them on our behalf. He will endure the penalty for our sin himself in his body and grant us reconciliation with God in return. The Lord has laid on him, the prophet says, the iniquity of us all. His chastisement has brought us peace. The Prince of Peace has done it in this way. And with his wounds, we are healed. One and the same person. That's what Israel missed. That's what's hard to put together. It is almost impossible for us to get a concept of the promise of this son, this child from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, and the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, and to say they're going to be merged in the same person. That is a stunning, mind-blowing reality that until we saw Jesus and what he did, it too was impossible. But it's the same person. This starts to open up the idea of what it means that he has saved his people from their sins. It starts to show us a bit more of what's required. It's an accomplishment beyond our ability to conceive until it is promised, happens in fulfillment of that promise, and we can look upon it and wonder. It's not just that Jesus has improved the quality of life in this world for those who trust Him as Savior. It's not just that He has promised them eternal life when this world ends. He's actually broken into this sin-shattered death trap of a world and provided through His birth and then His death and resurrection freedom from sin and everlasting life for those who believe. Isn't that amazing? That should be amazing to us, even though it's a truth we understand. As we press into this and see, according to Scripture, how this comes together, it ought to amaze us again, all over again, especially this Christmas morning. The eternal Son of God did not come in the flesh simply to help us feel better or do better in this world. He came to deliver us out of its death grip and to inaugurate a whole new world that the triune God had purposed to create. That's what happened at Bethlehem that night. In Christ, God has delivered us, delivered us. Do you hear that? From the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in the forgiveness of our sins, we are taken out from under this 
burden of death in this life and granted salvation, cleansing, reconciliation to God. We become citizens of a whole new world when we trust in Christ, even here and now, not just at some eternal point in the future. Here and now, we become citizens of heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul wrote to the Philippians, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's what happens when this salvation is fully and finally delivered. In the person of the Holy Spirit, we actually have a down payment on it here and now such that we are delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His Son. And what awaits us is that our bodies will actually be transformed one day to be just like his resurrection body. That's the salvation that Jesus will provide for his people. This is our future inheritance, but it has already broken into this present world. It happened when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God, in human form, invading this fallen world, and living among us. Our aim this morning is to send you on your way rejoicing in your great salvation. Rejoicing in our great salvation. Because we're rejoicing in our great Savior. Because of the miracle of His human birth. That set us up for the miracles of His death and resurrection and ascension and promised return. I want to look for just a couple of minutes at the second half of Romans chapter 5. Turn there with me if you would. Particularly just the summary verse 18. We're going to walk through this quickly. We're going to understand and appreciate what, what we read here about this salvation that Jesus has pro provided. The theme of this amazing letter of Romans, and by the way, this may be an introduction to what's coming next in our expository series this year from this pulpit. Not nailed that down yet, but pretty sure. The theme of this amazing letter of Romans is the righteousness of God. It's made known in the gospel and is received only by faith. We see that in the theme verses of Romans, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. We don't see this righteousness of God in the law because it has been made known apart from the law, Paul writes to this church. And it becomes ours only through faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 3, 21 through 22. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, we first read about the benefits of this righteousness of God. The benefits of having been declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Of having been reconciled to God. That impossible thing that Jesus has nevertheless achieved. But then in the second half of that chapter, verses 12 through 21, we read about the contrast between the sin and guilt, the death that we inherit as children of Adam, as compared to the justification and righteousness, the life that we inherit by faith in Jesus. That's what we see in the second half. Listen, verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, 
It's all parenthetic, the beginning of a thought, but what we read here is that we inherit from Adam our guilt as sinners. But we also engage in sin personally, proving our guilt and so confirming that we live under this reign of death as it's described here in verse 14. The reign of death is the legacy of Adam and we're under it. But what we see next is that the righteousness of Christ that brings life is not just a source of relief that comes upon us in this fallen world, leaving us under the reign of death, but just a bit better off in that state than all the rest of those who haven't trusted Christ as Savior. That's not what's being said here. No, it's, it's more than that. In fact, it's much more than that, as we'll see in the text itself. Yes, death has reigned over all sinners, over all people, since Adam. But, verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. No, it's, it's much more, as we'll see. For if many died through one man's trespass, not even so have the grace of God and the free gift of grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many, but much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. What happened in Adam was one thing, death. What happens in Christ is not just sort of an answer to that. It's much more than that. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. What happened, in other words, in the wake of the sin is the thing we can all understand really easily. It's not hard for us to imagine at all people becoming sinful in the wake of the one who introduced sin. Once one person begins pursuing his own best interest ahead of God's, everyone else will soon follow out of mere self-preservation. That's not hard for us to understand at all. What is hard for us to understand is the much more. We just have no category for understanding how it is that people who've become sinful by inheritance and by personal pursuit can then be justified before a holy God. And yet that's the legacy of Christ, according to Romans 5. What Paul is saying here is that this means we can return, we can return to the status of being not guilty even when evaluated by the perfect standard of a holy God. That's stunning. The life that Jesus introduces is not like the death that Adam introduced. That's what Paul is saying. It's much more. There's much more to it. And you can see that through the repeated mentions. Not like. Three times. Verse 14, 15, 16. Much more, verse 9, 10, 15, 17, 
You think it's important in this brief little section to understand that what Jesus did is entirely unlike and immeasurably beyond the legacy of Adam. The life he provides squashes and blows away in the wind the death that reigned in the wake of Adam. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. By the way, quick aside, parenthetic thought. There's some who read this passage and see universalism as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. Well, Paul makes it clear right now that it's for the ones who receive there in verse 17. This life has to be received, and it will, it will change all who believe. But it will only change those who believe. The remainder will remain under judgment. End of parenthesis. This new reign in life this unbelievable reality, this legacy of Christ that is not like the legacy of Adam, but is much more, this reign and life is not just a future inheritance, my friends. It's not just future. It is also a present reality. It will not yet be the full possession of the redeemed until Jesus returns, but it is already ours in down payment form as we trust in Jesus. That's an amazing salvation. It changes our destiny. It changes our nature here and now, even while we're still in the battle with the flesh. And that is central to what Paul is addressing with the Roman church in this letter. This is what brings us to our summary verse and the basis for our rejoicing in our great salvation this morning. And in the miraculous birth of our great Savior that marked God's invasion of this troubled world. Verse 18, summary. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, again, who receive it. Sounds so simple when we read it here as well, doesn't it? Much like when we read about the prophecy of Jesus' name. When you get to the summary bottom line in verse 18, it sounds simple and clear. Praise God for that because it is a simple and clear truth. But the profundity of the simple and clear truth that is expressed in verse 18 is almost beyond our imagining. What Paul is telling us is not just that we'll enjoy a slight change in spiritual status here in this life. Rather, just as we said earlier, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has reconciled us to Himself. Therefore, as he wrote to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Already, here and now, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this from God, who through Christ 
reconciled us to Himself, accomplished the impossible. The new age has dawned. Amen? The new world has broken into this present one in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. With his birth at Bethlehem as Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It has broken into this world with the arrival of Jesus. And with his death and resurrection, we too have been raised to walk in newness of life. That's the way Paul will describe it. Just a few verses farther on in this very letter, Romans 6, verse 4. In fact, in the words of Peter, God's divine power has granted us all things right here and now that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence through Christ, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, <laughs> the place where God dwells by His Spirit. Having escaped, listen to this, having escaped, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Peter isn't talking about just some future tense state in the presence of God for all eternity. He's talking about the walk of the believer here and now. He says there in verse 5, for this reason we make every effort, and now to borrow from Paul in the Ephesian letters to finish that thought, that's when Peter begins a long string of things that become true of us. For this very reason, make every effort to walk in a manner worthy of this great salvation we've received. This is present reality for the believers. Why? Because Jesus came, Bethlehem, to save his people from their sins and then went about accomplishing that to the praise of the glory of God. Amazing. Amen? Let's let the legacy of this Christmas morning be our reconnection with the glories of the salvation that is ours because Jesus has come into the world to save his people from their sins. Can that be, can that be the, 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 just the, the banner that hangs over today, the caption that's written under it? Today is the day that Grace Church of DuPage, together as one body of believers, reconnected with the glory of the salvation that is ours because Jesus came into this world to save his people from their sins. Are we in it together? Amen. Let's pray and then let's remember our Lord's death in communion. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this is a glorious reality that we have talked about this morning. Really, it's the simple salvation that comes through the work of Christ. God becomes flesh, lives a sinlessly perfect life, accepts the charge of guilt for all who believe, pays the penalty of their guilt so that you can both be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Him, as we'll read in Romans chapter 3. What an amazing truth. Simply stated, the great exchange, Jesus takes our sin and grants us His righteousness in return. 
a righteousness that comes to us by faith in him. Father, I pray that as we rejoice in the birth of Jesus this day, we would rejoice in the fact that the eternal Son of God has taken on flesh so that this whole transaction can take place, so that he can experience life in this world just like we do and not fall and therefore become a suitable sacrifice for our sins. And because he is God in the flesh, also a sufficient sacrifice for all who believe. We rejoice in these truths this morning, Father, even as we come now to the table of the Lord to remember and live in the body and blood of our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.